The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. That's why I love the personal touch. We're still not feeling too well, are we? Mm. Well, you look all right. I can't say the same for myself, though. At least your sense of humor is healthy. Yeah, well, that's all it is. Has Dr. Goodfellow made any progress in coming up with something to kill this virus? He's working on it. In the meantime, you might just remember that people who go traipsing around on unexplored planets without wearing a respirator are asking for an infection. Oh, well, that's great advice, Paulton. Thank you. Thank you very much for caring. I appreciate it. You've got a great bedside manner. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 16th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. What do you know, even in the world of Buck Rogers in the 25th century, they're still talking about killing the virus and wearing protective gear. (laughs) What was once a COVID-19 pandemic has virally mutated into the COVID-19 derangement syndrome, and it's suffered by the same people who suffer from the Trump derangement syndrome. And we'll be taking a look at both of these syndromes on today's show and more, right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on channel 292 shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links and our archive broadcasts. As always, consider offering your financial support. Everyone who donates $25 or more will receive a copy of the 52-page full-color publication Climate Essentials written by one of our regular guests, Dave Plum. Now, I thought I'd kick off the show today with this email I received a couple of days ago from listener Andrew, who wrote, quote, Masks will be mandatory in indoor spaces in Burlington on Monday. I'm ordering one from Amazon that has the anti-communist slogan on it, Better Dead Than Red. In a recent email exchange with my brother, he asks, Why can't we just get the facts? Why is everything so politicized? And I share his frustration. Can anybody formulate an intelligent response to this? From his perspective as a non-ideological STEM professional, even though he agrees with much of the stuff coming from the right, less hysterical, more pro-freedom, even that material is very politically oriented. Is politics simply inescapable? Perhaps it's delusional to think any sphere of human endeavor inevitably becomes political. Perhaps we should define what we mean by political, end quote. Well, maybe we should. Politics is the fourth branch on the philosophical hierarchy, where you have metaphysics, epistemology, morality, politics, and then aesthetics. Politics is that branch of philosophy that deals with an individual's relationship to the collective in which he or she lives. So when you ask, is politics simply inescapable, you are in effect asking, can the individual somehow escape the collective in which he lives? And the answer is no. 
The best that any individual can do with respect to the collective in which he or she lives is to affect the nature of that collective. Will it be a voluntary collective in which each individual is free to choose how to peaceably govern his or her own life? Or will it be a forced collective in which some individuals rule other individuals based on which of them have the reins of government and power at any given point in time? Now you can choose to ignore politics, but you cannot escape politics. Your entire social and economic environment is determined by how your country is governed, and the direction of government is determined by how people vote. But that's not where it starts. How people vote is not simply the result of an electoral event. How they vote is determined by how they think politically, and those opinions are being shaped daily and hourly by the political zeitgeist in which we are all immersed. And regrettably, we live in a political environment where there are enough people shouting better red than dead. And thanks to that, politicians are putting that ideological stance into practice. So, welcome to the world of mandatory face masks. You know, I used to naively believe that I could live my life free from the concerns of politics. Apolitical, <laughs> I thought I was. <laughs> what an idiot. Like most of the zombie voters out there still to this day. You know, in my youth, I stupidly voted for Pierre Trudeau in the late 60s, only to discover in retrospect that I had given my support to a communist whose policies were so destructive to the economy that, in a way, it's reminiscent of what's going on with the economy today thanks to COVID-19 irrationality. First mortgage interest rates hovered around 22%. That was unprecedented. The real estate company I was working for pretty much closed up shop. Businesses were devastated. I lost my job along with many other people, and in the process, I discovered that politics was inescapable. So I decided to see if I could play a stronger role in affecting the politics that was so much affecting me. I became a founding member of the Freedom Party of Ontario, whose first pitch to the public appeared on the cover of its door-to-door -door pamphlet, quote, maybe politics doesn't interest you, maybe freedom does, end quote. And as we warned, even if you're not interested in politics, politics is interested in you. You, as an individual, are the entity that governments tax, regulate, and control. There's no such thing as being non-ideological when it comes to this process. And there are only two choices, even though many like to believe there's a third, like some kind of middle of the road, a center point, away from all the extreme politics of what is perceived wrongly as left and right. Now, if you're wondering why it's impossible to escape politics, I thought one way I could illustrate an answer to that question was by reviewing some of the letters to the editor that I've been reading in the pages of my own London Free Press here in London, Ontario, Canada. And I've just sampled a bunch of them, and I think it'll help you understand why politics is not something you can avoid. This one by Bob B. of London with the heading Knuckleheads, and it ran on May 27th. Congratulations to all those 10,000 knuckleheads who descended on Trinity Bellwoods Park in Toronto. From the photos and videos I saw, it looked like the vast majority were young adults who yet again think that the rules do not apply to them. They showed a total disrespect to all of us, especially the frontline workers who have endured many weeks of following the rules. End quote. Well, there's someone who's a bit bitter at the fact that they have been 
apparently following the rules, and they don't like it when they see someone else not following the rules. That is a common theme you hear from all of these folks. False health claims harmful, Reader says. And the reader's Elvis D. from Strathroy, and he writes, quote, In reading the comments on stories published by the London Free Press of late, there is no shortage of militant anti-science postings. While the comment sections are usually entertaining, the comments that reflect refusals to accept proven science on the current pandemic, vaccines, and other health-related topics are troubling. Allowing demonstrably false comments to be published allows for more acceptance of information harmful to public health. I question why those constantly posting false claims on health issues are allowed to continue posting. I understand free speech and the need for public exchange of ideas. However, the false messages on health seen here are akin to yelling fire in a crowded theater, end quote. Well, why does this person not then refute these obviously, demonstrably false comments? What's the problem with refuting them? No, he wants to ban them. <laughs> and putting a lot of effort into making that point, he could have spent just as many sentences refuting the major demonstrably false comments he saw. The reason he found them troubling was because they were probably true, and he didn't want to have to face it. Heed rules even if you work in the U.S., writes Brian M. of London on July 11th. Quote, at this moment, Windsor is one of the worst hit areas in the province. As COVID numbers rise, there are people who feel they should be exempted from the rules just because they work in the U.S. Working in the U.S. comes with consequences, especially during a pandemic. Lots of lives have been lost due to COVID-19 and people doing what they bloody well want. I feel the rules should apply to Canadian citizens who work in the U.S. And if they don't want to follow the rules, they should face stiff penalties or move to the U.S. Canada has lost over 8,794 people, and we can't continue to lose people due to the lack of respect of other citizens who treat this pandemic like a common cold, end quote. This fellow so detached from reality is utterly consumed by fear and panic, and no one died because of people doing what they bloody well want, quote, end quote. That's ridiculous. They mostly died because of incompetence on the part of the government and our health care system and the inadequacy of the long-term systems we have in so many of these countries. They're all so socialized. And they all did so many things that were so wrong, it isn't funny. But no one here seems to be relating to any of the things that we've been talking about on this show for months now. The science is in. Masks help contain COVID, writes Lee J. of St. Thomas on July 8th, quote, The science is in. Mask wearing minimizes spread of the coronavirus by asymptomatic silent spreaders. It is the simplest way to flatten the curve and stamp out COVID. Infringement of personal freedoms is a red herring, end quote. Wow. Therefore, it's okay to infringe upon them? No way. COVID-19 is the red herring, and personal freedom is the real target of the left. That's what this is about. And these folks are completely confused about what's really going on at this point in this game. Big push on masks, writes Jane B. of London on July 3rd. Remasks a must on the bus. I was disappointed to hear face coverings for indoor businesses were not made a requirement. My disappointment was heightened when at the grocery store there were so many shoppers it was impossible to keep the required 2 meter distance. Only approximately 40% were wearing face coverings. 
I also do not understand why staff stocking shelves and filling online orders are not required to wear a face covering. Not one of them was, even though they were close to each other, talking and laughing. It would be difficult to monitor individuals, but stores could be monitored and face fines. We must all do our part, and unfortunately, some must be given a big push to do so, end quote. In other words, when persuasion fails, just use force. Even if those other people disagree with you, even if you're totally wrong about what you believe, you think you still have the right to tell somebody else what to do and how to behave. If you're concerned about the crowding in the store, don't go in. You see how people expect everyone else to bow to what they want? Sounds altruistic on the surface, but it's purely selfish. So the people writing these letters to the editor are all suffering from what I call a severe case of COVID-19 derangement syndrome. And guess what? These people all get to vote, no matter how misinformed their opinions or no matter how irrational. So if nothing else, that should answer why politics is inescapable. And as to the question, why can't we just get the facts? Why is everything so politicized? Well, we can and do get the facts. All kinds of them. <laughs> but facts don't tell the narrative, nor do they determine choices. And when those facts affect the collective, the entire body politic, then the choices that will be made regarding those facts, even if accepted as facts without dispute, will still be determined by the philosophy of those who are making the choices. All of those letter writers, with regard to their social distancing recommendations, would be considered fascist, based on how they would be willing to use political force against other individuals in their own society. But above all, most of them are completely oblivious to any of the demonstrable facts or their relative significance and context. So let's address some of those COVID-19 realities and myths with the following audio bite sampled from PragerU's YouTube posting of July 9th. Compare what you are about to hear with the opinions expressed by all those terrified letter writers and the flawed science and statistics on which their fears are based. Hi, my name is Dr. Jeff Barkey. I'm a board-certified primary care physician. I've been in private practice for over 30 years. Looking forward to talking with you today about some of the COVID-19 realities and uh, myths. I really appreciate you being here, Dr. Barkey. Gavin Newsom in California just said, now we're going to shut down the restaurants again yeah. uh, in a lot of uh, or California counties. Is this a good move that they're trying to shut down the, the economy again? You know, I, I think it's a terrible idea. We have to remember that initially when this virus came on, we were told we were going to shut down the economy temporarily. And the purpose of doing that was to so-called flatten the curve. And the idea was that we were worried about healthcare capacity, in particular New York, for a time in New Jersey, for a time even up in Seattle. The hospitals seem to be overwhelmed by cases of COVID coming into the hospital. We're gonna shut down the economy, let healthcare capacity come back online, then we would open up the economy. Well, that's happened. There's plenty of healthcare capacity now. We know a lot more about the virus, who gets it, how to treat it, who's at risk. So there's no reason to continue to shut down the economy. The young and the healthy, we should go about our business. There was never an expectation that we were going to prevent people from getting COVID-19. The deal was 
people would get the disease, but we want to mitigate the hospital problem. There's plenty of capacity in the hospitals. What we're seeing now with increased cases doesn't mean increased hospitalizations. That doesn't mean increased deaths. As expected, this is not a surprise. So the average age right now of the new cases that we're seeing is about 31 years old. Those are the folks that have an easy time with this virus. As a matter of fact, it's almost hard to calculate. CDC just yesterday came out and said the fatality rate in total is about 0.4%. What does that mean? Well, in comparison to influenza, that is somewhere around 0.15 or 0.2%. Um, so the overall fatality rate, at least based on current data, is higher than influenza, but what we're seeing is every week as we do more testing, as we get more data, the fatality rate is dropping. And they were starting to open things back up and now they're, they wanna close everything down again. We saw an increase in cases in places like Texas and Florida, uh, and they're saying right now Orange County as well. Yes, Are yes. the hospitals overrun in these places? No, they're not overrun. You know, I, obviously I know my hospital system the best and that's Hogue Hospital. They're not overrun. So what's happening, if you and I walked out of here and you fell and hit your head and you ended up in an emergency department, they would test you for COVID. And if you were to test positive for COVID, even though you have no symptoms, you're now a hospitalization for COVID-19. In addition, we've now opened up healthcare facilities for what was previously shut down as considered non-essential. So somebody now going in for shoulder surgery or knee replacement surgery or whatever it is, is automatically tested for COVID-19. And if they're in the hospital and they test positive, it's a hospitalization for COVID-19. In terms of the mass actually like helping stop the virus, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I don't want to get too controversial. The math, mask issue has really been beat up. My personal opinion is masks have very little utility in preventing the spread of the virus. For starters, most people have no idea how to wear a mask. So if you just watch people with their masks on, notoriously, they're every 30 seconds, they're touching it, they're adjusting it, they're scratching their nose. And as soon as you do that, you render the mask basically useless. In addition, there's been several studies, not for COVID, but for influenza and the common cold, looking at the ability of a mask to prevent infection. The conclusion was they don't work very well. Nobody's done studies on COVID yet, but we're speculating that if you wear a mask, it may offer some protection, even though there's very little scientific evidence to support that. Is there data to show that if I am at the grocery store and I see that old woman and I don't have my mask on that I'm you know, more likely to give it to her? Well, the data shows clearly if you are ill with the virus and you sneeze or cough directly in her face, that's how she's going to get the virus. There's little data to support asymptomatic spreading, meaning that you've got the virus, you have no symptoms, and this, this visual of people walking around crop dusting the population because you have the virus but don't know it just isn't accurate. And if you're sick, putting a mask on to prevent your spread to others is not going to help that much. The best way that you can prevent the spread to other people if you're ill is to stay home. But putting masks on school children not only is not unnecessary, but I think it's very unhealthful to do that. What is the, the issue with having your mask on 
and breathing your own CO2. Isn't that a bad thing to do? You know, we did an experiment in my office. We have fitness trainers in, our, in my office. They're super healthy and very fit. And um, I check their pulse ox, a little oxygenation meter that you put on the finger that measures um, uh, blood oxygenation. At rest, it should be around 98%. And on these two ladies, it was. Then we had them on a treadmill, walking briskly for a couple minutes, recheck their oxygenation in the same ballpark. Then I put a mask. One wore a surgical mask and one wore one of those homemade cloth masks. We had them, again, walk briskly on a treadmill for a few minutes oxygenation uh, meter back on them. Both of them had significant drops in their oxygenation. One as low as 79% and the other one was in the mid 80s. So for a healthy person over a short period of time, probably not a problem. But to have somebody who's not fit, wearing a mask, exercising with a mask on, that's crazy town. And it's very unhealthy to do that. Not only that, after you've been breathing on that mask for five or eight or 10 minutes, it gets really moist inside. And once that mask is moist, the ability of that mask to filter goes out the door. So its ability to filter viruses and other particles when it's wet um, drops precipitously. And so if you looked at, the, at a visual of the size of a coronavirus versus the size of the filtering ability of a mask, it's like the equivalent of building a, a chain link fence to try to keep out mosquitoes. That's the size differential. So although the virus can travel in droplets and the masks can somewhat collect those droplets and prevent those droplets from going out, there's still a very imperfect mechanism to try to prevent the virus spread. And we have studies with influenza and the common cold that, say, that says they just don't work. You know, I always find it very funny when I, I'm walking or walking my dog in my apartment complex and there's people just by themselves running with their masks on. It makes on. no sense. I'm like, you can't breathe, man. And, and there's gyms that, that have opened back up, although I understand they're now going to be closing, where they require people to wear masks. You have people on treadmills and various machines breathing hard and exercising with a mask on. Very unhealthy, in my opinion. But let's talk about just going into the... I don't want to spend too much time on this, but just we were talking before about how you had hydroxychloroquine that you subscribed or prescribed to some patients and you got some calls. What, what is the deal with this? You know, we were talking before we went live and I literally got a text from the pharmacy that said they are refusing to dispense my prescription for hydroxychloroquine. Just yesterday, uh, a patient with very mild symptoms that tested positive for COVID-19, um, I wanted to treat hydroxychloroquine, z and zinc. Makes perfect sense. The research and the studies are showing that for mild and early uh, disease, it works wonderfully well. So the pharmacy called me up. Hello, Dr. Barkey. Um, I need to know why you're prescribing hydroxychloroquine. By the way, hydroxychloroquine is not a restricted drug. It's, it's, it's not like I'm prescribing Oxycontin or Vicodin, where a phone call to verify the prescription would be appropriate. This is a non-restricted drug. It's been around since the late 1950s. There are literally, as you and I speak here, millions of people around the country, around the world, that take hydroxychloroquine for their rheumatoid arthritis, for systemic lupus. I would prescribe it routinely if you were going overseas to Africa to an animal park where they have malaria. I would prescribe it to prevent a malaria. It's very, very safe, and I believe effective early on at treating uh, COVID-19. But yet here I am challenged for the first time in my 30 plus career in medicine on a prescription that is otherwise perfectly safe. A pharmacist calls and wants to know 
Why? What did I say? Thanks for asking. I said, none of your business. This is between me and the, me and the patient. Just like I prescribe other medications, I would respectfully ask that you fill the prescription and not challenge me on, on my prescription. So that was my response. Ultimately, she backed down and said, okay, Dr. Barkey, I'm just sorry. I've been told that I'm supposed to call and verify. And ultimately they prescribe. But today, now, a pharmacist is refusing to prescribe. So we're now having to find a different pharmacy that, that is willing to dispense the product. It's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's crazy town right now what's going on. Yeah, I know. You know, one thing I found remarkable over the latest few weeks is how any discussion of hydroxychloroquine has disappeared from the greater narrative when nothing about its ability to effectively treat SARS-CoV-2 has changed. So what stopped the discussion? Well, of course, Donald Trump both endorsed the use of hydroxychloroquine and admitted to using it himself. But when people in the healthcare system of any country begin to restrict and prohibit known effective and safe treatments for the treatment of patients, then you know that saving lives is not something on their agenda. Consider the context of all of this. This headline from the National Post and London Free Press of July 11th. In Canada, cases of COVID-19 and deaths are declining. Relax too soon, an epidemic will rebound with explosive growth, officials warn, <laughs> by Sharon Kirkey. Quote, As new infections tear across the southern and western United States, setting new daily records for deaths that epidemiologists say were utterly predictable and disastrous, the virus is largely under control in Canada. End quote. So, America bad, Canada good. Quote, The news is good, Canada's... Deputy Chief Public Health Officer Howard New told a media briefing. But relax too much, too soon, he warned, and the epidemic, quote, will most likely rebound with explosive growth as a distinct possibility, end quote. <laughs> Listen to contradictions in that one phrase. A possibility? Anything that's not impossible is possible, including meteors falling from the sky. But a possibility? That's most likely? Well, that would be a probability, wouldn't it? <laughs> so which is it? A probability or just a possibility? Quote, a second wave is mathematically inevitable, says University of Ottawa epidemiologist Raywat Deonadin. Researchers have only started to get a grip on just how many of us have been exposed, but the majority are still vulnerable, end quote. Well, to call something mathematically inevitable is it's like calling upon the concept of infinity, isn't it? But what does mathematical inevitability mean? It means nothing. It's like all the stuff they're telling us in the papers. It's all meaningless statistics and meaningless statements that just leave circular arguments and uncertainties, which just tell us they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Quote, as long as the virus exists in the environment, it's going to find, purchase, and attempt to reassert itself, Dionandon says. That's the way these things work, end quote. Well, then as I turn the page to read more, and a whole full page is worth, no less, I see the subheading of the article on the second page that reads, Young are not invulnerable. Quote, it would be a mistake to think 
Young people are invulnerable from COVID-19. They obviously can get sick and die. So what is the true mortality rate? It's hard to nail down. Says Irfan Dahlia, a general internist and a vice president at Unity Health in Toronto. I have a hard time with numbers. Everyone has a hard time with numbers. It's hard to get your head around concepts like 0.5% or exponential growth at 1.1. What do these things mean? And <laughs> it bothers him when people want him to say that COVID-19 isn't that serious. 99.5% sounds pretty safe. But really, would you take a 1 in 200 chance of dying? I wouldn't. It's very clear now, four months into the pandemic, that this is a serious illness that has resulted in great loss of life, end quote. Well, that's a completely irrational argument in this context. Stay at home if that's how you think about the risk. But it doesn't justify making it illegal for the rest of us to take our chances. Thank you very much. Consider, too, that this report says, just as the headline says, that the COVID-19 cases are declining, and that, despite this admission in a June 24th tweet by Toronto Public Health in reply to an inquiry, quote, individuals who have died with COVID-19, but not as a result of COVID-19, are included in the case counts for COVID-19 deaths in Toronto, end quote. In other words, it's a complete admission of fraud. The stats were being given are blatantly fraudulent. And consider just how diametrically opposed to the interpretations of Dr. Jeffrey Barkey and so many other voices like his, these mainstream news media accounts are. The facts are the same, but the spin is in the wrong direction. Every positive is treated as a negative. Of course it's a fact that the young are not invulnerable, but they mean to the COVID-2 virus, which will only negatively affect an insignificant percentage of them. The young are not invulnerable to death by any cause. So what's the point of saying this? Just to create fear, terror, and panic about a non-existent threat, to justify a continued emergency when there is none. Same day's paper in the local section, get this headline. Virus hasn't killed in a month. It's a hopeful sign, but don't let your guard down, area health boss urges by Jennifer Beeman on July 11th. We do have ongoing transmission in the community until we see zero cases for a number of weeks at least. I wouldn't be comfortable saying this wave is over. We could spark a second wave easily if we're not cautious, said Chris Mackey, medical officer of health at the Middlesex London Health Unit. After months of deadly outbreaks in long-term care, COVID-19 could now be affecting less vulnerable populations, including young adults who may never become sick enough to end up in the hospital or die of the virus, said Saverio Stranges at Western University's Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry. We can never rule out the possibility there is still some community transmission that does not really translate into severe cases, he said. That's why we keep saying that we need to be prudent, that we need to keep doing the public health recommendations of physical distancing and wearing face masks. That will help keep us along the line of this declining trend. While the London area has added seven new COVID cases since the start of July and has had four days of no new cases over the same time, Mackey said the existence of positives in the community is still a concern. 
The health unit reported a single new case Friday, bringing the total number of cases to 633. Of those, 560 are recovered. London Health Science Center is still treating inpatients with COVID-19, but would not disclose the exact number the hospitals had Friday. Last month, the LHSC stopped its daily report of COVID-19 admissions since the number dropped so low it posed a risk to patient privacy. I can't believe what I'm reading. The hospital said it would provide an update if the number of COVID-19 inpatients rose above five. At its peak on April 28th, the hospital had 36 COVID-19 inpatients, including a dozen in intensive care, end quote. I really don't know what to say about that. After hearing those pathetic statistics, how can our politicians possibly justify anything they've ever done on COVID-19? And we'll never see zero cases. By the way, cases are not COVID-19 diseases, nor is this particularly desirable. And moreover, how can they possibly, morally or medically, justify further mandatory restrictions on everyone's peaceful social behavior in public? Getting ridiculous. On July 18th, Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, acting in his capacity as a lawyer, forwarded his personal blog post to the Durham Chamber of Commerce and Boards of Trade. And his post was called, Why Face Masks Might Not Be Mandatory in Durham Region After All. And I quote, You may have seen in the news that it will be mandatory to wear a mask in commercial establishments in the Durham Region starting at 12.01 a.m., on July 10th. However, unless the laws changed or extended, there will be no requirement to wear a mask and there will be no fines for businesses or their patrons, end quote. Now, because of the timing of the order to wear masks, McKeever warned the germ groups that the order may be invalid given that it was scheduled to take effect on the day following the expiration of the legislation on which that authority was based. And he cited all the various Uh, legislative acts that made this so. And he continued, quote, The Durham Region's Medical Officer of Health, Robert Kiley's authority to issue such an instruction is given to him temporarily by subsection 4.2 of the Ford Government's Temporary Ontario Regulation 263-20. End quote. And then, on a more concerning note, McKeever made this observation, quote, On July 7, 2020, the Ford government introduced a new bill, Bill 195, titled An Act to Enact the Reopening of Ontario. Once it is proclaimed into force, it will end the provincial emergency. It also will allow the government to turn emergency regulations into regulations that do not require the provincial emergency to be in effect. Did you hear that? It will allow the government to turn emergency regulations into regulations that don't require an emergency. Why bother doing that, asks Paul. One possibility is that the government wants to keep the regulations in place but feels it's getting increasingly controversial to call the current state of affairs an emergency. Coronavirus 2 testing is showing a decreasing number of people are testing positive. The hospitals are not under any strain due to COVID-19. Indeed, the anticipated demand for hospital resources has never happened, whether the curve was flattened or not. 
Another possibility? It may be the case that the province no longer wants unelected local health officials to create a subjective patchwork quilt of health policies across the province that interfere with an orderly centrally planned reopening of Ontario, quote-unquote. If the province is indeed going to try to reopen the economy, you know, the economy that it shut down, it may have to disempower local health officials who oppose the province's policy direction, end quote. Well, if that should end up becoming the ultimate purpose of Bill 95, then we're in for a long time of repeated lockdown threats and forced mask regulations. This, coming up, is from a British YouTuber who was just this week brought to my attention for the first time. Carl Vernon and what he has to say about pandemics and where COVID-19 fits into the grand pattern. Anyway, I came across um, a really interesting graph on Simon Dolan's Twitter account, the guy behind the Keep Britain Free campaign. So it basically shows the pandemics. I believe it pretty much covers them all. And there's 24 on here. You can see that uh, some of the biggies were the Black Death of the 14th century. You've got uh, the Spanish flu a little bit more recently, the early 1900s. What's interesting about COVID-19, if you have a look at the, the, the top there, at a death toll of 0.0052%, it's 23rd out of 24th on the severity scale of the list. The way we've been dealing with Corona, it's like we are dealing with the Black Death. The things that have been transformed beyond recognition, pretty much everything, right? And constant talk of second waves as well, like what's coming out of Beijing at the minute, talk of second waves. And you just kind of get this impression that it's this constant wheel, this hamster on a wheel now, isn't it? It's going to be constantly going and going and going and constant talks of second waves because corona or coronavirus is going to be an implanted part of society schools close after reporting coronavirus cases in england kid gets a bit of a sniffle has a bit of a cough school immediately closed it'll be the same with businesses it'll be the the, the same with pretty much every institution that you can think of somebody gets a cough a sneeze uh, he just coughed he just sneezed do 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 alert 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 close 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 second wave second wave Close everything down immediately. Another lockdown immediately. You just get this impression it's going to be this constant wheel of BS. After waiting for two hours and now getting two minutes, I'll get right to the point. Uh, this board is pretending that for the last three months, your emperor, Dr. Levin, has not been against a mask declaration. Now, all of a sudden, we're pretending that masks are everything, even forcing speakers to use masks. I would like the board to take a position. Was Dr. Levin wrong for those three months? And if he was this wrong, why has he not been removed? Why has he not been fired for being so catastrophically wrong? Or do you not really believe he was wrong? You're just wearing these masks because it is a signal of your great virtue. Because for the last three months, we have not worn them. And Ventura County has done outstandingly well and continues to do outstandingly well because we are not Los Angeles, we are not New York City, 
we never were going to be any of those things. Ironically, this is one of the few things Dr. Levin was actually right about. He has been wrong about everything. He is the one who told us we would have four to 600 hospitalizations a day. He, he revised that to two to 400 a day. We still haven't reached that in one day. We're barely over 200 for the entire ordeal that you guys have put us through. We now are panicked over 51 total hospitalizations in a county with eight hospitals. Can you people do math? Can you please do basic math and understand where we are on this? This is not a crisis. You, however, have created one. You, in an effort to try to prevent all death, when we've had 43 deaths, have now ended all relevant life. And you should all be ashamed of yourselves. And this will never be forgotten, ever be forgotten. You will all be held accountable eventually, in this life or the next. You all better hope there is no hell, because when you die, that's where you're going. And guess what? You're not going to be dying of COVID either. Thank you. Woo! Don't just stop. Don't come any closer. I need a six foot perimeter here. How could you be so reckless? I always wear a mask in my car because my grandfather fought in World War II and I'm trying to be just as brave. And now anytime I'm in my car, I also wear a condom because I don't want to get STDs either. And it works on the same medical premise. I think it takes a courageous individual to boldly wear a mask while they're in their car by themselves. It's a pretty rare trait. We're like the Navy SEALs of the roadways. We're pretty elite. That's why you don't see very many of us. But you do see some of us. Wearing my mask while I'm by myself in my car basically says, I might have COVID. And if I do, I don't want to catch it from myself. Because when I'm in my car, I'm within six feet of myself. So technically, I'm breaking social distancing rules, and I don't feel good about that. I got my degree in being under a trance from the State is Deceiving Me University. If there's one thing I love about airplanes, it's breathing the recycled air. And my commitment to wearing my mask in my car gives me the same recycled air purification while I'm in my car. It's innovative and cleansing. It's like we're basically in flying cars now. When people see me drive by in my mask, I know what they're thinking. Thank you for your service to our country. And you know what, people? You're welcome. They're definitely also thinking, he's an inspiration, that's a powerful virtue signal, and he's probably really well versed on the latest virus knowledge. When I get out of my car, I put on a mask over my mask because I don't want my mask to get infected while it's protecting me. Do I take my mask off at home? <laughs> no, I'm not suicidal. I also walk with crutches just to take weight off my knees to help prevent me from getting a knee injury. I think it actually strengthens my legs and character. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. 
In the remaining time we have left, I just wanted to mention the other dimension of our modern political zeitgeist. The pandemic that comes in the form of hating Donald Trump, and it has been aptly named the Trump derangement syndrome, given the pathetic and weak grounds on which so much of the hatred, and I'm talking hatred, not just disagreement, is based. Again, from a letter to the editor of my local paper, Trump is to blame, writes Murray A. on June 20th. Trump's stupid pressuring for an early opening of the economy without proper precautions has added to this catastrophe. Without doubt, Trump is the worst U.S. president in history. And another one from Ken D. of Kamoka on June 3rd. Trump not up to job. Donald Trump has no ability to bring differing factions together peacefully. He knows only power, conquest, and coercion. Sadly, this is the message the African-American community has been hearing for the last 400 years, and Trump has clearly endorsed that violent past. <laughs> Gee, who knew that the African-American community has been around for over 400 years? <laughs> you learn something new every time you read the mainstream media. Like, for example, this. Headline reads, Trump's lack of empathy, compassion, his greatest deficit. By Andrew Cohen on April 29th. Quote, The larger case against Trump has been made from court affidavits to articles of impeachment. Among his shortcomings are a lack of experience, judgment, maturity, integrity, concentration, consistency, curiosity, and generosity. But the greatest of Trump's flaws, <laughs> wow, there's more, is something we see every day in sharp, ghastly relief. As COVID-19 rages in the United States and the body count rises beyond 56,000, it's an absence of empathy. To understand Trump and his empathy deficit, look at his life. By and large, he's lived entirely on his own terms. He's had no real adversity or hardship. He's never known war, poverty, or personal loss. He has had business failures, hostile lawsuits, extramarital affairs, and divorces, yes, but emerged from them all with a sigh, a shrug, and a wave. Rather than humility, he has acquired invincibility. He has gotten away with it all. From the many women who accused him of sexual assault to the students he swindled at Trump University to the politicians of both parties he smeared. He avoided going to war and going to jail. He avoided conviction and removal in the Senate. It's remarkable. He's been spared the personal suffering that forged character in others. Abraham Lincoln, for example, lost two sons and absorbed vicious attacks on his appearance and his origins, as well as the abuse of his unstable wife. Theodore Roosevelt overcame asthma and the death of his first wife to become a tribune of the underclass. FDR was partially paralyzed by polio. He rebuilt his life, entered politics, and dedicated himself to the rehabilitation of fellow victims of the disease at Warm Springs, Georgia. Kennedy spent half his days in pain. He never complained. In the Second World War, he heroically rescued his crew in the South Pacific. He lost his brother and closest sister. He learned something about compassion. Empathy's big brother. Bill Clinton, who grew up without money or a father, famously quote-unquote felt the pain of Americans in the recession or the murderous attack on Oklahoma City. Barack Obama, black, without a father, could console the nation after shootings in Sandy Hook and Charleston. He quietly made regular visits to wounded veterans in hospitals. George W. Bush put his arm around firefighters in the World Trade Center ruins and meant it. 
each in his way understood instinctively that of all the elements of character that a president must project to comfort and console the country, the greatest is empathy, end quote. Wow. I don't think I've ever seen a more shallow and despicable reason to hate Trump than this Andrew Cohen rant. What, because Trump was not a cripple? Had a father? Didn't suffer from asthma? Wasn't paralyzed by polio? Didn't spend half his days in pain? Etc., etc. Then Trump's incapable of empathy and compassion? From everything I've seen with my own eyes when watching Trump in action, he's among the most empathic and compassionate presidents in history. And the most competent. So, remember, Truman is the guy holding the newspaper that says Dewey wins. <laughs> they were that confident. Now there is, there is somebody else who's saying a similar thing. He brought up the Truman-Dewey thing. Um, but his, his model, the primary model is what it's called, um, that he came up with in 1995 and has predicted correctly all of the uh, presidential candidates since 1995. He's giving Donald Trump a 91% chance of winning in November. Uh, he said that over the last 108 years, he ran the same model. He takes all of the opinion polls out. He doesn't care about opinion polls. All he cares about is how excited is the base for the candidate. He says because Biden has nothing, nothing going on for him except the opinion polls. But when you actually talk to people, everybody's like, I don't want to vote for the guy. I mean, I've, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to vote for him, but is there anybody else? He says because of the way he performed in the early primaries is what his his calculation always takes into into account. He says that Donald Trump is going to win uh, handily in the um, uh, electoral college hmm. and actually win with a bigger spread this time. Wow. Oh, I mean, that it's not impossible. I think a lot of the, what you said, they, those things do align. I, I would still give him less than a 91% chance of winning uh, the election at this point. Yeah. Uh, okay, but here it comes. Here it comes. No, I, it, look. No, 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 no. I think, no, you know, here it comes. He's going to rain on our parade. You're going to harsh I, my mellow. I got it. I think the closest we've ever come to this kind of uh, situation is is the Civil War. I mean, I you just can't predict this at all because I don't think they're done. Everything has been so well coordinated that... I have no idea what they have planned for the fall, but they're not going to be sitting on their hands. In the U.S., I don't understand how it could get so bad there with Donald Trump. I mean, not just with what he's doing or not doing, depending on how you look at the stuff. But the intense hatred's there now. But more seriously, the mainstream media seems absolutely determined to hate whatever Trump says. Whatever he says, whatever he supports, they hate it. Like the drug that he says he was taking against the coronavirus. I happen to be taking it. I happen to be taking it. Hydroxychloroquine? I'm taking it. Hydroxychloroquine. Well, if Donald Trump was taking hydroxychloroquine, it must be a stupid idea. The media went on a crusade. And you have to wonder now how many lives did the media's anti-chloroquine hysteria 
cause. Because in fact, hydroxychloroquine is being trialled in these two studies here, many overseas, as an early treatment or preventative for the coronavirus. And now, a new study of 2,500 patients, very scientific study, found that this drug cut the death rate in half. And this was the drug that journalists mocked simply because Donald Trump thought it might work. That's how insane the debate is over there. That's how polarised. Now, to help me understand how it got so awful, I've invited someone from the other side of the political fence. Remarkable career, this woman. Uh, was press officer to the wife of then-President Jimmy Carter, was a strategic consultant to President Bill Clinton, now lives in Australia. Barbara Heinebeck, thank you so much for joining me and welcome. Has America ever been so polarised in your long life as a political operative, so unable to have a serious and civil debate? Absolutely not, Andrew. This has been an amazing time in our country's history. It is so sad. The Democrats and all that has taken place now with what I call identity politics, I think there are several reasons for this. Number one, Donald Trump is one of the first presidents that's come into the White House that didn't have the invisible handcuffs on when he arrived at the Oval Office. What I mean by that, over 90% of your elite politicians, the Congress, the Senate, the White House, they are owned by the individuals, uh, the power players that put them in office. Over the last couple of decades with the Democrats, the Clintons were very foxy at controlling and absolutely spreading their individuals in every department of government throughout the uh, USA, whether it was labor, commerce, the State Department, throughout. And Donald Trump came in on his own recognizance. Yeah, he went broke twice. He, he was born, maybe I wouldn't call it with a silver spoon, but certainly a silver plated spoon with his dad. He went broke <laughs> twice and then kind of came back on his own and became a very wealthy man. So no one owns him. And because of that, he has been able to expose a lot of the lack of governance throughout the states, whether it was under an administrative, uh, Democratic or Republican team. Now they're trying to work on COVID-19. You know, we have two individuals that are running the current situation, not in America as it is throughout the world. Dr. Fossey has one responsibility to save lives, but Donald Trump has the responsibility as president to protect the citizens of the USA, number one, and also to move commerce, and he's got to do this. Barbara, are you pessimistic about the future of America when you've got these deep divisions and hatreds, not just political, but now racial as well? I don't know, now racial, but racial as well. The racial card in America has been played by the Democrats and I think people are beginning to wake up. However, I'm sorry to say, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. More Trump derangement syndrome. This one from Gwen Dyer on July 9th in the London Free Press and National Post. Headline reads, Disease ravaged a new world of the 1500s holds lesson for today. Quote, Last Sunday in Baltimore, they tore down a statue of Christopher Columbus and threw it into the harbor. 
According to the Baltimore Sun, protesters who yanked it down with ropes were dedicated to removing statues honoring white supremacists, owners of enslaved people, perpetrators of genocide, and colonizers. We could waste a lot of time discussing the many ways this was wrong. In terms of the goals of Black Lives Matter, it was a pointless distraction that merely provided fresh material for Donald Trump's campaign of racist incitement and slander, end quote. Talk about racist incitement and slander. But hey, why waste a lot of time discussing the many ways tearing down the statues was wrong? Dyer is blaming Trump for what the Democratic Party is doing. Could the president's gaslighting be running out of gas? Written by Robin Baranya in the London Free Press on July 11th. And after citing actress Ingrid Bergman's Academy Award for her role in the movie Gaslight as the victim of a manipulative husband who makes her doubt her own sanity, she literally segues from that observation to the following quote, and get this, quote, There will be no awards for Donald Trump's performance. He's as bold and transparent a liar as the world has ever seen, yet his efforts have effectively undermined confidence in reputable news, scientific evidence, and even objective fact. This template for a gaslighting presidency was in place from day one, the inauguration. Reporters puzzled over why the White House would falsify such an easily verifiable claim as audience size. Over four years, the president's gaslighting has only increased, often targeting people of color. He outrageously told four non-white members of Congress to go back to the crime-infested places from which they came, though three of them were born in the U.S. He has successfully recast kneeling in peaceful protest as an assault on the flag. He has called the Black Lives Matter mural a symbol of hate. Perhaps the gaslighting campaign is finally running out of gas, end quote. There you go. So having an opinion makes Donald Trump a liar. And the fake news stories that she's citing are old news, insignificant, already been spoken against, and we've already dealt with each of those BS events that she is citing. And just for the record, in no way has Trump undermined confidence in reputable news, scientific evidence, and objective facts. Reputable news, scientific evidence, and objective facts are always in high demand. They're just not to be found in the zeitgeist of today's political pandemics and syndromes. And certainly not in the mainstream media. One of the ways you can continue to hear reputable news, scientific evidence, and objective facts is by making it a point of joining us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Of course... Strong, independent women hate Donald Trump because uh, his policies mean that they will ultimately have to pay for birth control. And if there's anything a strong, independent woman really hates, it's to pay for her own stuff. Um, speaking of strong women, Hillary Clinton is still promoting her latest book. It's called What Happened? Uh, in this book, described by New York Times as a feminist manifesto, Hillary explains that she lost to Trump because American white women could not resist persuasion from their male family members. So they went out and voted for Trump. Don't you just hate it 
when a feminist candidate cannot smash the glass ceiling because of all these millions of stupid impressionable women standing in her <laughs> way. I'm glad you got that joke, because that could go either way. Um, 